0: Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. Verses 11 through 24. This is a notorious it's just a notorious chapter of difficulty. And it's one of the most difficult sections in all of the Bible. Many Christians have differing views on this chapter. You have dispensationalists that have their view of Israel and the church, covenant theologians that see their understanding of one covenant and two administrations of that covenant in the new and the old. You have Baptist covenant theologians that see this and See it a uniquely different way, and everybody in between they has their, has their interpretation, and what does the full inclusion of Israel mean, and what does the fact that, um, that we will one day see them reconciled instead of, instead of rejected, what does that mean, that they're going to be accepted? What is the lump and the root and the branches? What are all the things that Romans 11 is talking about? And everybody has their understanding of it. And so I'm going to give my best shot today and give caveats where caveats are necessary and then ask you to do what I prayed, and that's just be a Berean. Go to the Word and study it, and there's just room in this chapter for different understandings of this. I think there is some things that will kind of tie it all together, but I want us to be people who study the Word, wrestle with it, and believe it. So one thing I know for sure is we can't look at Romans 11 and say, I don't understand that, so it can't mean anything. Or I don't understand that, so I don't like that. We don't get to say, I like this chapter or don't like that chapter in the Bible. It's all as stated before, God's word, and we want to love it all. Equally. So we come to chapter 11 knowing that there's 10 chapters prior and so we want to keep in mind that every verse is within a chapter and every chapter is within a book and every book is in a testament and the testament is within the Bible. So context matters. Context matters. So the themes and the doctrines that are in first, ch- first 10 chapters of the book of Romans and in all of the Bible are going to help us to understand this and we have to be reminded again that the Bible never, ever contradicts itself. It does complement itself, and it clarifies itself. It complements itself, and it clarifies itself. So the age-old hermeneutical principle applies, or the studying of the Scripture applies, um, or how to understand the Scripture applies. The Scripture interprets the Scripture. We've all heard that before. The Scripture interprets the Scripture. It's so crucial when we come to chapters like chapter 11. So let's dive in. Why did Israel fall? Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they, which is Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, we are not talking about, in verse 11, the Israel within Israel. We're not talking about the true Israel, those who are chosen by grace. We are talking about the nation of Israel now as a whole. And Paul asks the question and answer it, is their falling away, is their stumbling simply in order that they may fall? Is it just all about their falling? Was it arbitrary, in other words, or was their purpose behind it? Was their stumbling, stumbling simply about them falling away Or was it purposeful? And Paul's going to answer, their trespass and their stumbling was for a purpose. Their trespass opened up salvation to the Gentiles. And it happened in order to make Israel jealous. This is what God is doing. This is not arbitrary. It's not as if God just washed his hands with them. But he is doing something with the Gentiles. And his purpose with the Gentiles is to do something with the nation of Israel. So why would it make Israel jealous? Well, it could make Israel jealous in Paul's mind because now Gentile Christians are being called children of God. Gentile Christians are being called children of God. Gentile Christians now are the people of God with the promises of God. And what Paul is saying is that as Israel is walking with the promises of God as the children of God, and as Jewish people hear me talking about the spirit of adoption that's upon the, Jew, the Gentile believers, they might be jealous over the fact that now the Gentiles are being called the children of God. And so Paul says their stumbling as a nation isn't purposeless. There's really a purpose, there is a plan, and it's that they would be jealous over the Gentiles. In verse 12, he expands this and tells us if their trespass means Riches for the world, so if the Israel's falling, if their trespasses and their stumbling mean riches for the world, that's the Gentiles, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If, here's the argument, here's how it goes. So Paul's saying if, because of their trespasses, riches comes to the world, then how much more If there's power and potency to their trespasses to open up salvation, how much more potency and power is going to come from their inclusion? And not just their inclusion, it says their full inclusion. If their failure meant riches for the world, what in the world is that going to mean when their inclusion comes to pass? What does it mean? And here's the big question that everybody has an answer for, and again, I'm going to do the best I can. What does the full inclusion of Israel mean in verse 12? How much more will the full inclusion mean? And there's big debates, and you open up your commentaries. When you go home to be that good Berean, and you read in your study notes, you're going to get all these options. Like all these different options of what the full inclusion of Israel means. And I think there are some better and worse ways to understand this, but I do have to say we don't actually know for certain what this means. For certain, where we can say, I absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and if anybody doesn't see this, they're crazy. We don't know that for sure. And I want to show you why there is a little bit of confusion here. Not to say that this is unclear, but just to say there is a mystery here. There is some mysterious things here that I think should make us stand in awe because that's where Paul takes us at the end of Romans 11, as standing in awe at the mystery and the wisdom of God. In verse 15, the full inclusion is worded in this way. If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It seems like in verse 15, and we'll get again to that here in a minute, it seems like in verse 15 that this full inclusion has nothing to do with Acts chapter 2, because this is written after Acts chapter 2, and the big salvation that happened in Jerusalem. This seems to be a future event. This full acceptance seems to be tied to resurrection from the dead. If they're rejection came with potency and power, then their acceptance is going to come with potency and power, and it says that it means life from the dead. What else could it mean but life from the dead? So when this full inclusion of Israel happens, there's going to be life from the dead. And that seems to be talking about resurrection. So many people, and we'll we'll come to my conclusion here in a little bit, or my my humble conclusion here a a little bit, it seems like that there's going to be before Christ returns, a massive revival of ethnically Jewish people. and then when Christ returns, this is going to key off this resurrection of the body, the resurrection of life. So when there is a future inclusion, when there's this revival of ethnically of ethnic Israel, that's going to be tied in with the resurrected body. But then, To add layers to here, and I'm just going to, I don't mean to just confuse everybody, but I just want to point us to the text. If we look at verse 25 and 26, here's what it says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then here's what it says. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now that seems to be saying the way this full inclusion is going to happen and the way all of Israel is going to be saved is when the fullness of Gentiles come in. So when all the Gentiles come in, then all of Israel will be saved. So the Gentiles being the Israel of God. And so, confusion... And arguments abound because then in verse 28 we see as regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their fathers. So it seems like some of that corporate election of God over Israel, the national election, it seems like even though Israel is hardened to the gospel, there is still some corporate purposes that God has with the nation of Israel. And then all our In times, theologies come in and try to answer that. And depending upon, as stated a few weeks ago, what ecclesiology you have and what eschatology you have, you just go from there. And there's different ways to understand that. But but my best shot at saying what the full inclusion of Israel means has a mixture really of kind of all of those views. It includes the fullness of Gentiles coming in. And I think it also includes... Before Christ returns and the resurrection of the body, I think it also includes a large part of Israel in the future who has been chosen by grace and who will come to accept Jesus as the Messiah by grace through faith. I think the best I can understand this is that there is some future massive revival coming to Israel. I think. And I hope, because after all, we want people to be saved, don't we? And wouldn't it be great from all tribes and tongues if there was a massive ingathering of Jewish people who for century after century had rejected Jesus come to say we were wrong. Jesus is the Messiah, and they repent and believe? How great would that be? I think even if we say, well, theologically, I see that differently, we should all desire that. We should all want that because we want more and more people to be saved. And I think, the best I can understand it, that's what we see. And I think they're going to become a part of the church, which is the true people of God. The true people of God right now, this moment, is not ethnic Israel. That's not the true people of God. The true people of God are those who are born again from all nations, tribes, and tongues. Jews, Gentiles, those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. That is the true church. So, you cannot be saved by being born a Jewish person. You have to be saved by Christ and Christ alone. But I think, by this full inclusion, I think it means there's going to be a massive end gathering. And I hope it happens. I really hope it happens. We see that Paul wanted this to happen. Regardless of how you slice it, or how you say, or when this is going to happen, or if it has, or when it will happen, Paul wanted his Jewish brothers and sisters to be saved. He wanted them to be saved. And we see that because he says it. Look at verse thirteen. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, in so much then as an I'm apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul's ambition here in writing this and in doing his ministry to the Gentiles, he wants Jews to be saved. He wants some of them to come to Christ. He wants them to trust in Jesus. Paul, the Jew of all Jews, as the apostle to the Gentiles, cannot shake his desire for his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know the true Messiah. And he wants his fellow Jews to be jealous so that if it, by any means necessary, almost it's like in... in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he's like, hey, I make myself all things to all people that so so by, by all means I may save some of them. He really has this missionary zeal to his people. He wants them, he really just wants them to be saved. Because we know already, because just because if you're not the true Israel, if you're not a the Israel within Israel, if you're just from Jewish descent, it doesn't mean that you're saved. You have to be that Israel within Israel, chosen by grace, trusting in the Messiah. And so Paul desires it. And then verse fifteen, when this happens, it's this with massive, massive ingathering. When this massive ingathering of Jewish people become Christians and are gathered as the church, it comes with powerful results. Because fifteen, I don't know how else to understand verse fifteen. But if their rejection means reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. And so as we pray for this, the mission of God to go forward, there's going to be a time in the future. And I'm one that leans, I don't think that this is the last generation or Christ is going to return this generation. It could be hundreds, if not thousands of years from now. Could be. I don't know. Or he could return like today, right now, this moment. I don't know. But I, every single generation from the return of Christ has said, well, we're the generation, we're the generation, we're the generation. I don't know. We're probably not, to be honest. But we might be. <laughs> we might be. He might. Today. But when this massive in-gathering and the full inclusion and that all the Gentiles have been brought in, who have been also chosen by grace... Then the resurrection, life from the dead, happens, and I think that then this resurrection from the dead is going to happen, where we will receive resurrected bodies like Jesus's resurrected body. He was the first born among many brothers, and that same physical body that Jesus had, not some spiritual floating body. That same physical resurrection that Jesus. Was resurrected with, we will also be resurrected with. So if we've already died, then our soul that's with the Lord will come and be paired with our body and we will be body and soul. And then some people say, well, we're trichotomous, so body, spirit, and soul. Whatever, we won't get into that argument, but body and soul or body, spirit, soul, body, mind, and soul all together and resurrected bodies. So this in-gathering and the resurrection are tied together. So far, are we here? You may not agree, but you, you see where I'm coming from? Amen. All right. Terry Moore sees where I'm coming from. So that's good. So when Israel saved, it's consequential. There are massive consequences. And now I, this is tied. Verse 16 is the most controversial of all these passages. You think, well, that might be controversial. It's the most misunderstood of all the passages. OK, it's let me just read it and then again, tell you what I think it means. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The lump and the branches. What or who is the first fruits? the lump, the root, and the branches? The debate rages. What is it? Because it's tied in with the acceptance of Israel. It's tied in with the Jews and the Gentiles. What does it mean that if the dough offered his first fruits, is that the patriarchs? Is that Christ? Is that God's promises? And if that's holy, then so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, is that Christ? Is that the first believers at Pentecost? So are the branches. And here's what I think it is I'll just tell you. I think the lump and the branches. Seems like we're getting in the weeds here, but if we're going to preach this text, you just got to get down in the weeds and just go with it. I think the lump and the branches are the visible people of God. Let me say that again. I think the lump and the branches are the visible people of God. I think the lump is the Israel of old and the branches are the church of today. The visible people of God in the Old Testament and the visible people of God in the New Testament. Now let me explain what I mean. Not necessarily all truly born again people, but the visible people of God. So theologians down through the centuries have tried to make sense of uh, what is the church. And people answer that in different ways. Presbyterians in particular and Baptists have answered that in different ways in understanding who are the people of God, answering the question. And if you don't know this, what separates Baptists and Presbyterians and all non-denominational people are in line with Baptists, whether they realize it or not. They have the same a basic understanding of the covenants and, and who are the people of God. Um, Presbyterians say the people of God are believers and their children. They're all the covenant people of God, and so there's a mixed covenant. There is believers and non-believers in the covenant. Baptist and everybody else says that uh, we believe in regenerate church member- membership. That the visible church are only those who have been, with the best that we can tell, born again, have the Spirit of God indwelling with them, then baptized and welcomed into church fellowship. But what everybody agrees on, the visible church are those who have been baptized and welcomed into the church. So right now, any member here is a part of what's called the visible church. But what's happening behind the scenes is this thing called the invisible church. Because we don't know who is a true convert and a false convert. All we're looking at is evidences. And God is in his sovereignty, knows who truly is saved and who truly is not saved. So there is a visible church, everybody who claims to be a convert, everybody who claims to be a believer, and I think that is the branches. Okay, I think that is the branches. I think the root is Christ. But then behind here are things called false converts, people whom we call brother and sister, people whom are welcomed into church membership. They're going to come to the potlucks when we have the potlucks. They're going to to pray. They're going to come to small group. They're going to be discipled. But the root is not actually in them. So in the same way, in the Old Testament, you have a true Israel and a corporate Israel. Within the visible church, you have the visible church. You have what's visible, which has true and false converts in it. And you have the true church, which is made up of regenerate believers. And we can't see the reality of that. It's invisible. The best we can tell, we try to practice regenerate church membership. But we see, as stated in the Old Testament, Israel and the New Testament, the church, including true and false converts, but both are within the visible people of God. So there is a real sense in the Old Testament in which God was gracious to all of Israel, even those who did not believe. Meaning, who was rescued from Egypt? All of Israel. Did all of Israel have faith in the coming Messiah? They did not. So just by being associated with the visible people of God, they got to experience God's grace in ways that the Edomites, in ways that the Moabites, in ways that the Egyptians did not, whether they had faith in the coming Messiah or not. Are you following me here? So regardless of whether or not they had saving faith, as a part of ethnic Israel, they had certain privileges. That others did not and I think that's also true with the visible church there is a real sense in which today God is gracious even to false converts simply because they are visibly a part of God's church so if you're a false convert here and you don't maybe you don't even know that yet and in time will tell through abandoning the faith that you go away The time that you're here, anybody that's a part of God's visible church is going to receive gracious love each week. They're going to experience some wonderful things as being a part of and in the people of God, whether they actually know God or not. They're going to experience things that non-Christians do not experience. In the same way that non-believing Israel experienced God's grace in unique ways, so does false converts today. See how this can be confusing? So within that holy lump and branches, how are things going to work? Within the holy lump and branches, so there's a sense in which that even false converts are called holy, even though they're not having the root within them. How does this all work? Look at verse 17. But if some branches... Were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, now talking about Gentile believers, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. If branches are broken off because of unbelief, we see that in verse 20. We see that branches are broken off because of unbelief. We'll get back to it here in a second. Because of lack of faith. And you, Gentile believers, are grafted in and share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, I think the root is Christ and the olive tree is the church. I think the root is Christ and the olive tree is the church. Do not become arrogant toward the branches, so the Jews who lack faith, don't become anti-Semitic. Don't be arrogant towards them because we are not our own own support. And here's what's true about every Jewish or every Gentile believer you don't support the root, the root supports you. I think the root is Christ. We don't support Christ, Christ supports us. We are not to be arrogant because we are not supporting ourselves. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews who have rejected Jesus. The Gentile cannot puff his chest out and declare, I as a Gentile am the reason the Jews were cut off. God somehow loved me more and said, I'm done with the Jews. I'm going to go with the Gentiles. You can't take credit for this. So do not be arrogant, Gentile believers. And you see how impactful this would have been in the first and second century, in the first century in particular. Don't become arrogant. Anti-Semitism has no place in Christianity then and it has no place in Christianity now. And we see a rise. You see this like Ben Shapiro. You know, everybody loves Ben Shapiro. But most a lot of people do. Unless you're on the left and you don't like him at all. And I'm sorry for offending you. But, um, but through his articles, The Daily Wire, we see anti-Semitism is on the rise. And Christians should repudiate that. We should absolutely repudiate that. So we are not to be arrogant at all. Nevertheless, look at verse 20. That is true... Verse 19, then you will say the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So don't be arrogant and say that. Verse 20, this is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. It is true that Israel was broken off, but not because of God's preferential treatment of the Gentiles. They were broken off because of unbelief. They didn't believe. They rejected the Messiah and murdered Him. And They were judged in AD 70. They will be judged. If they don't repent now, they were judged at the cross. If they do not repent and believe, there's no hope for them. But they were broken off because of unbelief. So the Jews, who are part of the visible people of God with this corporate election, this Israel, the ones who did not believe in the Messiah... They were cut off. And here's the exhortation. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like the ones who did not believe. Instead, Gentiles, those who are in the visible church, Gentile Christians, instead, stand fast through faith. Don't be like the false Israel who even though they had the Election of God corporately over them. Don't be like them because they didn't have faith in Christ. You, if you're a part of the church, don't be like unbelieving Israel. Be a part of the church as if you were the real church. Believe in Christ. Continue in faith. Stand firm. Don't make the same mistake. Instead, don't become proud. Instead, fear. Why are we to fear? And now, if there are any false converts in here or anybody who doesn't know Jesus, you're about to get punched in the gut big time. Okay? And real Christians, this is going to turn out for the believers in the room, which is the majority of us, we're going to get driven to assurance of our salvation because that's the the place of warning in the scriptures is to to drive people to Jesus. When we hear of being cut off and severed, what the true believer then responds with is if, that's tr- if, if this warning is here, I must cling to Jesus more tightly than ever. And I will run to Him for assurance. But for the false convert or those who are walking in unrepentant sin for years and years and years, for those who say I got saved back when I was in grade school and then never darkened the doors of a steps again, uh, be warned. Be warned. Do not mock God by some false conversion story. Do not mock God by living in sin and for yourselves, never repenting, never feeling sorrow, and only walking with worldly sorrow because God will sever you. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Many Bible-believing, Jesus-loving brothers and sisters from passages like this, and I see where they're coming from, I really do. They teach that you can lose your salvation from passages like this. Okay, And I, I really, I see where they're coming from. And I think from different perspectives, wherever you come from, I think it's always wise to be generous with each other. And I see where they're coming from in, on passages like this, and in Hebrews 6, we'll be here in a minute. But the reason I, I reject that, and I'm going to be peeling for a different way to look at this today... The reason I reject that, and you know me, I I love eternal security, I love that, because Jesus never sinned, and and we are counted as righteous in Christ. But I also believe in chapters 5 through 8 through Romans, Paul just hammers in over and over again assurance of salvation and the security of the believer, and the promise rests on grace and not on works of the law. And in light of Paul telling us about all that, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, I don't think that this is talking about salvation here this morning. Personally, I'm 100% convinced, convinced of that, and I know that there are the people that would see this differently, and we love our brothers and sisters who do. But I do not think this is talking about being cut off or spared, not being cut off from Christ itself or salvation. But I think the warning is absolutely real, and I'll explain here in a second. I also think that imputation of righteousness is so crucial for us to understand when we think about salvation and we think about our security. But here's another big reason I don't think this is talking about salvation, but I do think it is a real warning. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. And some of the first debates when you get into uh, Christianity are, are things like can you lose your salvation or not? And, and different denominations have different answers for that. And it's always kind of the first point of theological dialogue and, and argumentation. You get in arguments over that, and then it's election, then it's end time theology, and there's kind of these big categories that people fight over and argue about. And, you all can nod your head, you know, okay, yeah, we've been in those before. Uh, if you haven't, then you, it's just a matter of time before you hear discussions like that. And Hebrews 6, 4, 9, along with Hebrews chapter 10 are, are, are places that people go to, and they'll say, okay, look, you can see here some sort of, of falling away. And I want to absolutely say absolutely, yes, there is a real falling away and a real rejection of something and a real severing and a real cutting off. But the answer is, is that from salvation or from the visible church? and I think it's from the visible church. Just like with Israel, it's analogous with the church today being true and false converts. But Hebrews is interesting because you have strong passages of warning in Hebrews, but you also have these strong passages of assurance. And so when we go to receive communion, often we'll flip to the book of Hebrews and and say that he has perfected once for all time those who are being sanctified. We go to assurance, and you have passages like 6 and 10, and in Hebrews chapter 2, the strong warning. And then the argument is, well, how are these warning and assurance both here together? And as I said like five minutes ago, the intention of warning is to make us shake in our boots and say, oh my goodness, if that's true, I need Jesus to drive us to assurance. And so that's why you see warning and assurance together so often. But I want you to first look at verse 9 in chapter 6, and then I'm going to read back through verse 4 down through 9. Here's what he says, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Now, this is going to be crucial to what I'm about to explain. Things that belong to salvation is what he is sure of, of the beloved he's writing to. In other words, what he just wrote about, the things that I'm just writing about here, they don't belong to salvation. It's categorically something different. I'm sure about something better for you, things that belong to salvation is what he's saying. So what are those things that don't belong to salvation that are out of it or different than salvation? Look at verse 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away To restore again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned And now, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, here's what I want us to call our attention to. Just like there's a true and false Israel within the church, there that and the true and false Israel experienced some of the exact same things those who had faith experienced in the Old Testament. They experienced the redemption of God out of Egypt. They They experienced the provision of God in the wilderness. They experienced walking over into Canaan. They experienced the conquests. Even those who rejected God received the benefit of the judges coming and delivering God's people. Even those who rejected God within Israel experienced the benevolent reign of Saul, Saul, of, of, of David, of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, things went bad. But They experienced of Solomon. Excuse me, sorry, I'm getting my kings mixed up. They experienced the benefit even if they didn't have faith. Now, here apparently things that don't belong to salvation, and it sounds like what we experience things that do belong to salvation. You can be enlightened, once been enlightened, you can taste of the heavenly gift. You can share in the Holy Spirit. You can taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and not be saved and fall away. Not from salvation, but from the visible church, from what they experienced as a part of the visible church. And they can be severed from that as they fall away. And I think this is a real warning, and we see it just by experience all over the place in our life, wondering, we look back on our childhood days, or we think about people that we knew that walked with the Lord, apparently it looked like it, and they experienced some of the exact same things we experienced. And Paul's saying, you can experience all these, or the apostle, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can experience all these things, and if you fall away, those are the type of things that don't belong to salvation. But it sure does look like it. And so he says, I'm certain of better things for you as he writes to them in Hebrews. Now, back to chapter 11 in Romans, verse 21. I'm going to connect some of these dots. Just because you are a part of the Gentile visible church and have a profession of faith, and you think about this with Hebrews 6, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasting of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, just because you have a profession of faith, have been baptized and recognized as a brother and sister in Christ does not mean you are saved. And we as a church, we believe in regenerate church membership. As best as we can tell, we only admit people in who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, made a profession of faith, and walk in obedience toward baptism. But even with that commitment, we sometimes get it wrong and we admit false converts into the visible church. And these false converts can experience many of the same blessings as true converts for a while. But if you don't have faith to the end, you will not be spared. If you don't have faith to the end, you will not be spared. Friends, I, it just says it. I don't know how to get around it other than that. If you don't have faith to the end, you will not be spared. God will not be mocked. God will not be Mocked, and he will not spare the faithless. Thanks. How many people do we know like that? Who have made or making a shipwreck of their faith. They left, they didn't endure, they were like Demas, who did ministry along with the apostles. Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Demas, in love with this present world, has left me. Demas A man who worked side by side to the apostles. Judas, who experienced all the miracles, saw all that God had done through Christ, all that Jesus did, all of his teachings, all of his love, all of his compassion for children, walked with him. Jesus washed his feet as he washed the feet of the rest of the apostles. He experienced the joy of seeing people brought back to life, seeing Lazarus move from death to life. And he did not endure. He walked away selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And God will be severe with a man or woman like that. If you come walking with us, loving the Lord, and you abandon Jesus, He will be severe with you. And you will be cut off. Look at verse 22. Note this. The kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen away, but kindness toward you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Notice how kind God is. God is so kind. And God is also severe. And God is also severe. We love God's kindness, don't we? We love it. But beware... If you run from God if you use the grace of God to sin and abandon all the while saying I've got grace, I'm the Lord's, I'm saved He will be severe with you Note the kindness and the severity of God Severity towards those who have fallen away, but kindness toward you, provided you continue in His kindness If you run, if you willingly leave the church, and you die in that state, you will not be saved. You'll be severed, cut off. And there are some who have done this, according to Hebrews 6, and they're so far that it's impossible for them to be restored because their consciences are so seared that they have run and run and they never want to return. Now, in the case of those who have run from God and want to return... And want to come back, like my friend John Gunther, who we are excommunicated in this month. He's supposed to be here in our church to publicly repent to you and be welcomed back as a brother. It's amazing. In his case, he didn't meet the qualifications for Hebrews 6 because he wants to come back. There's repentance and faith. He wasn't too far, but there are some who so push the grace of God away and so run from the benevolence of God and the love of God and the love of His people that they're, they're just too far. I don't know who those people are. It's up to God. But they will not return. And they will be cut off. If you don't stay, if you run and never return, you will be cut off. Now, 1 John says this, 1 John 2, 19, about false converts. They went out from us but they were not of us. That's crucial. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they were not of us. Now here's what it meant. There were people within the church at Ephesus. That's where John is, pastor in Ephesus. They were called brother and sister. They received Holy Communion. They prayed for the saints. And I think they're the Hebrew 6 type folks who looked the part, played the part, People would have said, I know they're a Christian. I know, I call them brother. And John says, they went out from us, but they were not actually of us. They were not of us. Because if they had actually been of us, if they had been of us, they would have continued. That's the mark of those who are truly saved. Those who are the true church, real converts, they continue on. They may stumble, but they're here. They will stumble, but they're here. They're with us. They're continuing on. We're picking each other up. Come on, endure. Let's go. We're not going to quit. No matter what, we'll fight the fight. We'll finish the race. We'll run the course that God has for us, and we'll do it together. Let's go. There's dirt under your fingernails. Your back's sore. Your spiritual muscles may be tired, but you don't quit. You endure till the end. You continue. They continued with us. If they were of us, that's what they would have done. Continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. They were just like unbelieving Israel. The true church within the church endures to the end. The false church, like unbelieving Israel, does not have faith to the end. They fall away from the visible people of God. For those who are wondering and scared, you shouldn't be. If you're really a Christian, if you're the Lord's and you're like, am I or am I not? We'll get to that here in a second. Um, But this is here for a reason. And the warnings are here for a reason. And they're there for a reason because there are people like this, and we see the book of Jude is all about this. People who just use the grace of God for sensuality and sin. There's no room for continued repentance the rest of their life. And that's just not the Christianity of the Bible. If you love Jesus, you love Him and you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ and you go and gather with God's people and you do that to the end. And you're going to do it imperfectly and you're going to stumble, but you're going to do so by the grace of God trusting in Jesus all along the way. So there's a lie we have to clear up and just kind of nail down before we move on. Verse 23, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. That's where that, this full in gathering, where there's, if there's Jews that will believe in Jesus they'll be grafted into the visible people of God. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in into their own olive tree? God is able to bring the Jews back to himself if they will come to him With faith and believe in Jesus, they will be saved. So, Gentiles, do not think much of yourself. Self be humbled. And I want to end with a few charges for us this morning. Now, what? What do we do when we work through a passage like that? What do we do? Well, verse 18 gives us a command, and verse 20 gives us a command. Okay, here's the command to us this morning don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. I would never do that, I would never fall away. I would never run from Jesus. I would never be like those unbelieving Jews. Don't be arrogant. Your potential is really dark. Don't be arrogant. Don't beat your chest and say, I am the different one. If it's not for the grace of God, there go I. Verse 20, the second command for us this morning is stand fast through faith. Verse 20 This is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith so you don't become proud. Stand fast through faith. This is a gracious sermon, whether it sounds like it or not. It's a sermon on assurance, whether it sounds like it or not, if you're truly a believer. Why? The warning in the life of a true believer leads directly to assurance in Christ. Because true converts hear a message like this, and they truly do. They just come to Jesus, and they want to sing about him and cling to him and touch the hem of his garment and hold his hand and grip it tighter and say, Jesus, please, if it's not for you, I would be just like unbelieving Israel. We cry out to Jesus, and we say things like this, Jesus, keep me from running My heart, as one song says, is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Help me not be that man. God, keep my conscience from being seared. Keep my heart from being hardened. I want to follow you in the dark days. I want to trust you. Help me to stand fast. And so for the true converts in this room, we should cry out and go, Jesus, help me, please, help me to stand strong. That is the result of warnings In the life of a true believer, they run to Christ. And Hebrews is full of that. Like this is, like John 15 is. To the false convert, the charge is a little bit different. You can become a member of the church and experience some things that true converts experience. You can be baptized. You can even be a deacon of the church and not actually be saved. The church I grew up in. One of the elders of the church had been a deacon of a Baptist church for years and then he was converted. He was an unsaved deacon. He was a false convert. How many in this, just don't say names or anything, how many of you know somebody and their story was, I was a part of the visible church for years, member of a church, and you heard the testimony, maybe they served in an office, and then they said, and then I got saved. Anybody? A lot of a lot have heard that story, okay? And all those years before, we would have called them brothers and sisters, and it may have scratched, caused us to scratch our heads, like, what? You're a deacon? And you're not saved? What in the world? And we know that story. We've experienced it and seen it. And here's the charge to the false convert, or those who are running in sin, or running away from Jesus. Run to Jesus not away. Warnings in the life of false converts will either harden them and push them away, or it will drive them to Jesus in hope. And I don't want people to be like Demas. I don't want people to be like Judas. I don't want people to be like unbelieving general uh, Israel. I want those who are false in our midst to be saved, to repent and believe in Jesus. And the other option here is according to this passage, or is remain unmoved and time will tell who is the wheat and who is the tare. Time will tell who is the wheat and who is the tare. Who truly knows Jesus and who is just here just to be here. Let's pray. Father, I, like with any other passage, help me to never be ashamed of your word. Help us to just, if you say it, we believe it. And apparently, There are just some things that we need to consider. And for those who are, I pray you'd help us to examine ourselves to test whether we are in the faith. And in doing that, help us just immediately think of Jesus. Just, Jesus, I need you. You're mine. You're for me. You died for me. And grant every true believer in this room just to be just doting on Jesus. Just to say, Jesus, thank you. I need you. I cling to you, I love you, I thank you that I am forgiven. I pray that no true believer would be, uh, in doing this would be thinking that they are a false convert. But for those who are false converts, if there is any any of them in here, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that they're a phony. That they've been faking it for years and enjoying the benefits of being here. And for brothers and sisters who right now are running in sin and running away from you, I, I ask that you would stop them in their tracks and I pray that they would not be like unbelieving Israel. I thank you for what you did in John Gunther's life, that you you you've brought him home, recited just to celebrate that fact here in a few weeks. Lead us now. Uh, help us to sing to you, sing songs of assurance and songs of repentance and songs of your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.